Psalm 119, 1 through 16. Blessed are those ways, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who will walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm uh, Pastor Chris. Uh, I'm the founding pastor here at King's Cross. Uh, if you are visiting, I want to give a special welcome uh, to you guys. Uh, I do see a couple faces this morning, and so if you're if you're new to sort of like our call to worship or our our liturgy, uh, which is just a fancy term for our order of service, um, the reason that we do these readings and the reason that we ask you guys to recite prayers and catechisms and, and, and verses from the Bible is because when we open up the scriptures, one of the things we see is that is that church worship is something that we participate in together as a congregation. It's not something where you've got like consumers out in the audience uh, to, 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 to receive something from some like uh, really impressive person out up front on stage. No, it's like we're in this together, right? Uh, and so the word of God is something that we, that we say and that we receive and that we preach and sing to one another. Uh, one of the things that I have the joy of doing for you this afternoon uh, is to uh, introduce to you guys a, a good friend of mine, uh, Josh Sales. So, Pastor Josh, would you mind uh, coming up here? He's going to be preaching for us this afternoon. Um, if you didn't know, I'm on like a one-month sabbatical from, from preaching and some of my other responsibilities as pastor of this church. So, uh, again, if you're visiting, you're welcome. Um, I've got some of uh, my good friends and uh uh, just gifted preachers uh, coming up here to share God's word with you. Uh, Josh is a pastor elder at Village Church in Irvine, uh, which is uh, our primary sending church. They're the church that we, we sort of got trained and prepared, covered in prayer. Uh, they sent us uh, with some people and some funds uh, to plant this church in Rancho Santa Margarita just a few years ago. Uh, and uh, Josh, when we left, was... Uh, uh, sort of like a, a core member of the church family there uh, and has risen through the ranks uh, and he's now uh, one of the, the teaching uh, elders at, at the church. And I'm really excited because uh, the first time I, I heard that they had uh, Josh like preach for his first Sunday, uh, I asked one of the other elders like, how did it go? And then uh, his response was like, dude, I, th I think Pastor Matt's out of a job. He's like the main <laughs> preaching pastor. So uh, I've been really looking forward to, to hearing uh, Josh uh, preach uh, the word. And um, so thank you for serving 
our church family uh, while I take this time up off. And uh, if you guys wouldn't mind bowing your heads with me, I'd love to just pray for Josh. And uh, we'll open God's word together. Father, I thank you so much for my brother Josh, the gifts that you've given him. Um, and we recognize, Lord, that as, uh, as much as I've been looking forward to hear my friend and brother preach, uh, just the, the transforming power that comes from your word doesn't come from a man, but comes from the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we just invite you to do your work in our hearts, to be thankful for this word that you've preserved throughout the French centuries for us to, to feed upon and, and to read and study and learn from this afternoon. That we would uh, just surrender any, any doubts or hang-ups or pretenses we may have walked into this room with, and that we would just lay our souls bare before you, eager to see more of Christ, and to be more transformed into his likeness. That's what we want by the end of our time together. And so that's what we ask for, and it's in his name, in Christ's name, that we pray these things. Amen. All right. Thanks, brother. Thanks, Chris. It is, it's good to be here with you guys this afternoon. What's going on? Um, we're going to be in Psalm 119. It's the longest chapter in our Bibles, but it's not just known for its length. One of its defining characteristics is that it's an acrostic that follows the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Each stanza in the chapter is dedicated to a Hebrew letter, which is why most of your Bibles have a Hebrew letter at the beginning of each stanza. 22 letters, 22 stanzas. And this goes even further into the construction of each of the stanza. Each stanza has eight verses, and in the original language, each stanza starts with the letter to which that stanza was dedicated. So every verse in the stanza for Aleph starts with the Hebrew letter Aleph. This continues for each of the eight verses across all 22 stanzas and letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which takes our total verse count to 176, all with the central theme of the written revelation of God. And as we'll see, there are several words used to describe it. It's called law or testimony or precepts, commandments, rules, statutes, and word. Each of these names is a little nuanced in its strict definition, but the heart of it all remains the same. 22 stanzas that revolve around the revelation of God that span the entire Hebrew alphabet. Psalm 119 is arranged to cover the word of God in the Hebrew equivalent of A to Z. A couple years ago, um, my family got into birds, like, like really, like really into birds. And I remember this because one time we were driving in the car and my wife pointed one out and all the girls in the car just lost their minds, right? I had, I had flashbacks of like junior high dancing, um, dances when, when the Backstreet Boys would come on and all the girls would freak out and I just didn't really care all that much about it right? They, they, they lost their minds. I've never really been into birds. I never really paid attention to them until I saw my wife start to quiz my daughters on birds. They, 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 would, they would smile as they listened to bird calls and bird songs because there is a difference. I heard their excitement when they asked questions. I listened to them when they played bird bingo, right? They would lose their minds when we put on the podcast of the bird diva, and I'm not making that up. There is a podcast with a woman who refers to herself as the bird diva. 
I just thought it was just this weird homeschool thing, right? They were extremely excited about something I'd never really given that much thought to. And then my wife started showing me the birds that they were singing and describing their songs. My kids would just bubble over in excitement. They talked about birds in ways that I wasn't used to hearing them. I wasn't into birds, but I liked listening to them talk about them. Because there was something in hearing their love for birds that drew me in to start to enjoy them for myself. Psalm 119 is a meticulously crafted declaration of the word of God. The psalmist sees things and expresses things about scripture that at first sight might seem distant and unrelatable. He talks about God's revelations in ways that we're not typically used to hearing it. But he talks about it with so much passion and fervor that I like to listen to what he has to say. And I'm hoping that his Holy Spirit-inspired love for the Word of God would draw us in to start to love it more and more ourselves. And the last thing I'll say contextually is that as we go into this, we need to keep in mind that this is poetry. And when we interpret poetry, we have to see that form is function. And what I mean by that is we have to pay attention to not only what the psalmist is saying, but how the psalmist is saying it. He uses various poetic devices to communicate meanings, acrostics, metaphors, similes, chiasms, but the most common device used is parallelism. And we see it right at the beginning of Psalm 119. Let's read it again, verses one through three. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. Notice in each of these three verses, the second line is set in parallel and defines the first. Blamelessness is defined as walking in the law of the Lord. Keeping his testimonies is defined as seeking him with your whole heart. Doing no wrong is defined as walking in his ways. But also notice that the common thread in all of these descriptions of an obedient life is not that, is that it's not just obedience for obedience's sake. It's obedience seen in its relation to God. Blamelessness isn't just blamelessness. It's walking in the law of the Lord. Keeping testimonies isn't just keeping testimonies. It's seeking him with your whole heart. Doing no wrong isn't only avoiding sin. It's walking in his ways. Obedience is being described in its relationship to God, showing us that God's people love God's law for God's sake. I lead the kids' ministry at the village, and because of everything that has happened over the past year, we started putting together these kids' Bible stories, these videos, where we would record these things each week. And I would get on there, I would talk to kids about the Bible story, we'd have some games, we'd have worship songs, it was a lot of fun. And with just about every video, I tried to do two things. I tried to teach the kids to love Jesus, and to teach them to hate Tootsie Rolls, Right? This is our second year in the New City Catechism, and we got, with the kids, we got to question 15. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? And the answer is that we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. And in the video, I explained the kids, I explained it to them like this. I said, if you came to my house and I had rules, and those rules were no Tootsie Rolls, no raisins, no cats, no mint chocolate chip ice cream. What would you think that says about me? 
And on Sunday morning, when we are describing this and watching this video together, the kids start screaming at the video. That means Mr. Jots hates Tootsie Rolls, cats, mint chocolate chip ice cream and raisins. And they were absolutely true. That's all that's absolutely right. Why? Because my rules aren't arbitrary. My rules are an extension of myself. My rules are an extension of my character. And in the same way, God's rules aren't arbitrary. They are an extension of himself. One of the purposes of the law is that we may know the holy nature of God. And that reality runs right through the heart of the passage that we have for this morning. God's words, his commands, his law, his rules, his instructions are an extension of him. So we love his rules because we love him. Our love for the law starts with our love for the lawgiver because his words are an extension of himself. But I think that's secondary to what the psalmist is actually trying to communicate. I think the main point of the first three verses is that the people who walk in this type of obedience are blessed. Now, this blessing isn't a material thing. It is a state of being, a state of joy and fulfillment, satisfaction and peace. And this is what everyone is after. They just might call it something different and think they can get it from different places other than God. Everyone wants this feeling of fullness and joy, but almost everyone has a different way of pursuing it. We look for it in a person or career or home. Thinking if we could just get what we think will make us happy, if we would just reach this state of blessed bliss that we're after, we'd be satisfied. We just need the autonomy to pursue it in the way that's right for us. And with this idea, the biggest hurdle to the state of blessedness that which we seek is constraint. It's restrictions. And if we could just shake ourselves free from constraint of rules and requirements and responsibilities and limits, we will be free to get all of the joy that this life has to offer us. And that is precisely why what we're seeing in Psalm 119 feels so deeply counterintuitive to us. The psalmist is saying, with full confidence that the way to joy and satisfaction and peace and fulfillment is not in the experience of full freedom, but in the restriction of it. Because the reality is that even when you feel free, you're still bound. That's why the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 14, 12, verse 12, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Our judgments have been corrupted, and if we're left to our own devices, our choices will end badly for us. The commands of God come to rescue us from ourselves and instructing us in the way that's best. God has designed life and marriage and parenting and work, and as the designer and author of these things, he knows how they work the best. And when we follow his designs, we're operating in the path that will lead to our greatest joy. God's requirements and statutes and commands are for our good. This tells us that there's a right way to live. And God's commands instruct us in that way. Marriage works best when I love my wife and put her needs before my own. 
There's a right way to do it. Parenting works best when I'm not a source of frustration for my kids, but a source of godly instruction. My job works best when I work hard, even when I'm not being watched. There's a right way to do these things. And I can go on about my finances or being a good neighbor or a son or a citizen. The Bible instructs us in the right way to do these things. And when we lean into those instructions from a heart of obedience, blessings flow. But I think there's something even bigger that the psalmist wants us to see here. This obedience benefits us not just in helping us live according to the way things are designed, but also in bringing us closer to the designer. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And later in John 14, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The more you align your conduct with God's good commands, the more you enter into this blessed state of joy and satisfaction that can only come from being near to himself. The psalmist commends this life of obedience because of its benefit. But there are more reasons for us to be obedient than only for the sake of blessing. Let's read in verse 4. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Notice here that the psalmist is now directing a prayer towards God saying, you have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. This has turned into prayer, and this lifestyle of obedience to God is not only commended commended to us because of blessing, but commended to us because of command. And here we see another word for God's revelation, precepts. Calling God's revelation precepts puts the emphasis on the specific instruction of God's word. And what's commanded is our diligent attentiveness to keeping God's law even to its most exact details. With that understanding, it's no surprising to see what the psalmist says next. Let's read verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Statutes are God's written word. After after reflecting on the benefits and the command for our obedience, the psalmist examines his his self. He examines his life and sees a gap between where he is and where he wanted to be. And that gap is filled with lament and longing saying, oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. You can almost feel the desperation in this. He sees God's standard and realizes that he's not there. He hasn't gotten it figured out yet. He's down here in the mud with us. He knows God's commands are good and that God is good. He knows that there's blessing and joy and satisfaction in keeping them. And he gets frustrated with himself because even though he knows all those things, he still feels himself wandering. His ways are not steadfast in keeping God's statutes. He's inconsistent. This is a Holy Spirit-inspired lament of our struggle in keeping God's commands and our longing for something better. And that better thing that's being longed for is captured in part in verses 6 and 7. Let's read them. Then I shall not be put to shame, having fixed my eyes on, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. The longing for consistent obedience in verse 5 
is paired with the desire for complete obedience in verse 6. He wants to fix his eyes on all of God's commands, not some of them, all of them. He's not content with where he is. He doesn't just want part-time obedience to some of the commands. He wants consistent obedience to all of them. God's standard has become his standard, which leads his aspiration to complete obedience. He's aspiring for more, more obedience, more godly, more holy. Even though this psalmist already sounds like he's legit, it doesn't stop there. He keeps wanting more. And the reason this stands out to me is because most of us rightly and truly believe that we can't get to perfection on this side of heaven. So we've just settled into complacency. We won't be perfect in this life, and that's totally true. But the Bible says that we should strive for it anyway. And I sense that this is where we tend to settle. I played football in high school. And at the end of my freshman year, um, I got brought up to varsity just to practice. And that means I got hit a lot, and I held whiteboard during games. And at the end of one of the first practices, there was time for conditioning. And we would run these 40-yard sprints to keep us in shape. And I see it in my, my what, like, I don't know, 13-year-old mind. This is my chance to show out, right? So they line us up, they blow the whistle, and I take off. And I'm gone, right? And I'm the first one to, 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 to the end of the field. First one. We line up again, they blow the whistle, gone again, right? And so now I'm like feeling myself, right? It's very chariots of fire. Like as I'm running, I can hear and feel God's pleasure saying like, go, my son, go, right? And so I'm flying, boom, four, first, first, first. Came up to around the sixth one, a senior stopped, looked at me and said, hey, freshman, stop running. And then at that moment, it clicked. It wasn't that I was running fast it's that everyone else was intentionally running slow, right? They had this common and mutual understanding that if everyone ran kind of fast at the same pace, no one had to try really hard. And the reason why, the reason why this illustration popped into my head, and I've told this to the people at the village, is that my fear for myself and the people around me is that when it comes to holiness and our pursuit of obedience, we're all just content to jog trying not to fall too far behind so that we don't look bad, but also not pressing in or pursuing obedience to make things too hard for ourselves. I, I know we won't get to perfect obedience on this side of the cross, but this text is telling us that it should still be our aim. It should still be our desire. And that's not all. With that aspiration for complete obedience comes an aspiration to praise with an upright heart. That's why he says, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. He wants to worship without a guilty conscience. Have you ever, have you ever had a Sunday morning when you felt so guilty for what happened the night before or the week before or the morning of? that you couldn't lift your voice in worship without feeling like a hypocrite. The psalmist doesn't just want to honor God with his lips while his heart is far from him. He wants to praise God from a heart that is right with God. 
And this upright praise will come as a, result, as a result of learning God's righteous rules. He wants to let those rules straighten his conduct so that his praise is unhindered by his guilt. He wants the praise to come from a heart that is right with the God that he's worshiping. This is the aim of all learning. The end of all learning is worship. Exercises in theology end with doxology. The word of God properly received ignites praise in his people because it turns their hearts back to him. And we see the consummation of this lament and longing and aspiration that we saw in verse 5 in verse 8. Let's read it. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. The, the seeds of longing and lament and aspirations in verses 5, 6, and 7 go, grow into a tree of resolve in verse 8. Verse 8 is the book into verse 5. In verse 5, he says, oh, that my ways may be steadfast and keep your statutes. In verse 8, he says, with resolve, I will would keep your statutes. The longing, lament, aspiration has given away, has given way to resolve. Before, before I move on, I just want to pause here. Because there might be some of us that feel stuck in this cycle. Stuck in the cycle of lament and longing and aspiration and resolve, only to fall and lament and long for better, aspire to more, resolve and fall again and again and again. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you both to will and to work. The evidences of God's grace in your life is manifested not only in your obedience, but also in your desire for it. Verse 8 ends with the psalmist pleading, please do not utterly forsake me. He's asking for help. He knows that if he's abandoned by God, even his most sincere resolve will fall flat. He needs help, and he asks for it. And this is our example. We long for obedience. We work for it. We pray for it. And we wait for the Spirit to move us toward it. Now, as we move into the second stanza, we see a little bit of progression. The longing we saw in verse 5 and the resolve in verse 8 gets more specific and practical, and it's outworking in verses 9 through 11. Let's read them. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 9 sounds similar to the tone in verse 1, but the word for way in verse 9 is different than what's used in verse 1. Way in verse 1 is talking about manners of life, um, a daily life. Here it's talking about journey, my path. So you take that definition and put it back in verse 9. It asks the question, how can a young man keep his journey pure? And the intention of this verse starts to become clear. But I don't think of, uh, but don't think of purity only in the sense of sexual purity. That's most definitely part of it, but not all of it. It's a general sense of moral purity. God's word here is presented as a young man's lifelong guard and guide, protecting him from vices and bondage. 
commentators think that the reason that a young man is mentioned specifically was to illustrate the point that if God's word can keep a young man in check, it can keep almost anyone in check. I don't know if that's right, but it's definitely believable, right? Regardless, God's word is shown to be the guard for our lives against the harm sin brings. That's why the psalmist doesn't want his path to wander away from God's commands, because there's danger. And this desire for safety of, of obedience finds its practical expression in verse 11. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The, sol- the solution, the psalmist's inclination to stray into sin is storing up God's word in his heart. It's taking everything that God has given us and storing it all in our heart. Now, I'm sure most of you have probably already heard this. But have you ever paused to think about the wisdom of it? Have you ever considered how much of our sin is actually the result of intentional decision-making? I'll give you an example. I have, I have four kids. Um, two of them are boys. Um, and so a few months ago, my wife was listening to a podcast about raising boys. And she told me how on the podcast, they said that the way boys show affection is physical, right? So they play fight and they wrestle, and that means that, that, that they love you, right? So that bit of information stored in my head, a couple days later, my three-year-old son walks up to me and just punches me on the side of the face. And so I, I sit down with him. I'm trying to be a good dad. I say, hey, buddy, um, I know you punching me in the face is your way of saying I love you, but there are other ways to show people that you love them. Like, you can say you love me. Do you want to say I love you right now, Papa? And he goes, no, with zero hesitation, says no. I want to punch you in the face and did it again. So in that moment, I didn't have the opportunity to decide how I was going to respond. I didn't think, hmm, this displeases me. What should I do next? It didn't. My reaction didn't afford me that luxury. My reaction was too quick. I got hit a second time in the face and there was anger. And not the righteous anger, right? The very unrighteous anger. And so much of our sin happens this way. Something happens, we don't think, we just react. Life doesn't pause before big decisions so we can contemplate our next move. So much of our sin doesn't come from intentional decisions. So so my question is, if most of our sin is not the result of intentional decision making, why do we think we can be intentional in our decision not to? What makes us think that in that moment, right before anger or jealousy or lust or dishonesty, we are all of a sudden going to be able to slow things down and choose not to get mad, not to get jealous, not to covet, not to lie. Now, don't get me wrong. There are choices involved. There's will involved. There's volition involved. But with a lot of our struggles, we get the sober-mindedness to con- choose to con- not to continue in sin after the wheels of that sin have already started turning. I think our experience has taught us that only trying to will ourselves not to sin doesn't work. Just simply trying harder doesn't work, or at least it doesn't work for very long. Sooner or later, the habits and reactions start to come back. So there there, there has to be a better way. Enter Psalm 119.11. There's another way to stop sin before it happens. It's to store up God's word in your heart. 
D.A. Carson blew this whole thing wide open for me a few years ago with a simple question. He asked, how do you get the air out of an empty cup? He said, you fill the cup with water. We can waste so much of our energy and our time trying to suck the sin out of our lives when that's not the way the Bible instructs us. The way to rid sin in ourselves is not to suck it out with willpower and effort, but to push it out with something better. The Puritans called this vivification and mortification. Sinful thoughts and motives just can't be removed. They have to be replaced. And that's done by storing up God's word in your heart. That's, why Sol- that's what Sol- Solomon meant when he wrote in Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Your, your thoughts, your desires, your opinions, your inclinations all have their root in your heart. So you can purify them all by placing the filter of God's word over it so that everything that comes from it is pure and good. And those sinful reflexes, reflexes will start to fade. Let's get back to the text, verse 12. It says, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. The word for blessed here isn't the same one that we saw in verses 1 and 2. The word is speaking about God, and it carries with it an expression of praise. Blessed are you, worthy are you, wonderful are you. This is adoration of God. And in this context, the implication is that God is so morally pure, so perfectly perfect, that the psalmist finds it beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that he wants to reproduce that beauty in himself. He wants to be taught so that he can imitate everything that he finds praiseworthy in God himself. And again, God's people love God's law for God's sake. We want him to teach us his ways so that we can walk in his ways. On the hills of the psalmist describing how he's storing up God's word in his heart, he cries out to God to teach it to him. Storing up God's word in your heart is still dependent on God teaching it to you. This is Holy Spirit illumination. We cannot properly store up God's word without God. Memorization alone won't get us there. He helps us understand it. He draws it into our hearts. We might read and memorize, but it's God who teaches. The truths of scripture are God taught. So in prayer, we plead for help. Teach me your statutes. And as we finish out this stanza, we see that a person that is stored of God's word has some characteristics and walks in some commitments. The psalmist gives two characteristics and four commitments that come along with words stored in our heart. And we see the first one in verse 13. He says, my, with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. Do you see what he's saying? With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. What he's saying here is that God's words have become his own. They are on his lips. He's speaking his words. The first characteristic here of God's word stored inside of us is that it doesn't just stay inside of us. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What we have inside of ourselves will come out. That's why, my, that's why my seven-year-old daughter at random times out throughout Christmas season will just yell out, bye, buddy, I hope you find your dad. Also, why we'll catch her playing with her toys, singing to herself, praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Because that's stored inner and it comes out. God's word in our hearts shape both our inner and outer dialogue. It forms our opinions. It's carried along in our words of encouragement and correction. It fills our gatherings and services. Words stored in your heart will come out of your mouth. This is how God designed it to work. Continue in verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Now there's a comparison being made. And more, maybe more than anything, we see that the, what the word of God is capable of. It's capable of providing us as much delight as we can find in riches. And now that the government is just sending us money, I know what it feels like to delight in riches, maybe a little bit more than I did a couple years ago. And the psalmist is saying that there's that much joy and more for us when we give ourselves over to Scripture. God's word stored in us creates joy. And in this, we see the potential for joy and delight that we can find in the Bible with the intention of motivating us to pursue it. This is a testimony of the pleasure just waiting us found in God's word. But all these things, all of these benefits didn't just happen for the psalmist. Although the word stored in his heart is taught by God, he very clearly doesn't give himself over to passivity. He's not just waiting for God to push his word into his heart. The last two verses in the stanza tell us what he's doing while he's waiting. Let's read it in verses 15 and 16. I'll meditate on your precepts, fix my eyes on your ways. I'll delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The psalmist pled for God to teach him his ways. But while he waits, do you see what he's doing? He's meditating on his precepts. He's thinking about his words. He's turning the word of God over and over around in his head. His mind is occupied with the precepts of God, and he's fixing his eyes on God's ways. Over and over again in this passage, we've seen the psalmist's reliance on God to teach him his word. But that doesn't absolve him from the responsibility to actively participate. The grace of God is present in his disciplined, intentional engagement with Scripture. Learning and loving God's word doesn't just happen. There's an element to it that takes work and time and effort. And from that, again, he says he will delight. Now we're in verse, uh, uh, this, this, this is different from the word that's used in verse 14. The word in verse 16 has a bent towards delighting that comes from consolation and comfort. He's committing himself to find solace in Scripture, meaning that when life gets difficult and turbulent and hard, when troubles come, when questions arise that lead to anxiety and anxiety leads to worry, he doesn't abandon the word and go somewhere else to find comfort and relief. This is reiterated when he says, I will not forget your word. In every aspect of his life, he commits to letting God's word lead. This is letting God's word bear its weight on his entire life. From these things, we see that the psalmist commits to engaging mentally with the word. So while the psalmist is waiting to be taught by God, he's positioning himself to receive the lesson. Now, this isn't how we're used to hearing people talk about the Bible. 
This isn't natural. This is only possible for those that are in Christ. This love and affection and desire and commitment to God's word is only possible through Jesus. In fact, for those who haven't put their faith in Jesus, God's commands don't bring life. They bring condemnation. Jesus, on our behalf, absorbed the punishment we rightly deserve for violating God's law so that all that's left for us is the blessed direction and benefit for us to receive from it. It's with Jesus' death and resurrection that God created a new covenant, a new way of relating to his people, saying in Jeremiah 31, for this is the covenant that I will make for, with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Through the power of the new covenant, the external law finds its home within us. It's written on our heart, uh, uh, one where his commands are not a burden, but the joy we hear it described here. It's through the working of the gospel that we can enjoy the goodness of God's word. What the psalmist is expressing about the word of God doesn't come without God. We, we, we can't contrive it. We can't force it. We can't will it. It's a gift. So, so maybe you're, you're feeling some longing today. Like the psalmist, you long to obey and enjoy more and more. Or maybe you're not even there. Maybe you're, you're longing to long to obey and enjoy more and more. I think that the psalmist leaves us with a good example. Whenever he's, he's confronted with his inability to, to, to steadfastly keep God's statutes and law, he cries out to God for help. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.